Well, uh, the songs will preach if I can't. That's a man. That's a great way to celebrate our Lord um, through song. Man, we we just sang the gospel. I don't know if you you picked up on it or not, but uh, that was it. If you missed it, um, you're in luck because I'm about to preach the same thing, right? Uh, guys, it is the marching orders that give us not just uh, hope, but give us life. And we're going to talk about the same thing this morning from John 19. So if you've got a Bible with you this morning, go ahead and open to John chapter 19. John 19, we're going to look at verses 1 through 16 today and really talk about the kingship, the kingdom of Jesus, our King of Kings. We've been preaching, if you haven't been here at Fellowship, and if this is not your church family, you wouldn't know this, but we've been walking through the book of John for over a year now, and honestly, I'd sort of hoped six months ago or so that by some divine providence we'd land on John 20 today, and it'd be like some resurrection miracle, right? It didn't happen, but guess what? We're still going to talk about the resurrection from John 19. Um, I, uh, I got a FaceTime call from my brother. His name is Kyle. His name's actually Les. I call him Kyle. It's confusing. I'm not going to get into it right now. But uh, I got a call from him yesterday. He's a pastor as well in South Alabama in the Dothan area. And uh, he called me, which doesn't happen a lot, and he just wanted to talk and visit for a minute. One of the questions he asked me, he said, what, uh, what passage are you going to be preaching tomorrow? And I said, uh, John 19. You know, he said, Easter Sunday, what, what passage you preach? And I said, I'm going to do John 19. He said, oh, okay, uh, the crucifixion? I said, no, uh, Jesus' uh, trial about him being treated like a mock king. And he got this really incredulous look on his face like I was an idiot, which I guess that's just brother stuff, you know. It was, I didn't take it offensively. But he was like, what? He said, you're not going to talk about the resurrection on Easter? I was like, the trial? What are you, you're not going to talk about the resurrection on Easter? And I said, dude, will you calm down? You know? Like, will you just relax for a second? I, I can't preach Jesus as king without preaching the resurrection. That's just what we're talking about today, church, is that I may not be talking about John chapter 20 or Luke 24 or going to one of the classic resurrection passages, but I'm going to be honest with you. You can't preach the gospel without ultimately ending at the resurrection because of our King Jesus. So today, I'm not preaching the narr a narrative that is the resurrection, but we absolutely must huddle around the fire that is the resurrection because it is the only thing that gives our life hope and meaning indeed. It's the gospel. Honestly, it's a good thing that we have to eventually find ourselves at the resurrection because when I come to the passage we're looking at this morning in John 19, to be honest with you, feelings of gladness and joy don't come quickly. Sunshine doesn't come quickly. It looks more like that on the inside of my heart. The Good Friday had to be brutally bad before it could be gloriously good. The picture of Jesus in my head that I get from this passage we're going to look at this morning, I'll be just transparent with you, it makes me sad not glad. Even still, this Easter Sunday, my goal is the same as it is on any Sunday, and that is to bring to mind the bad news of where we are without the resurrection so that we can leave wrapped in the good news of who we are because he is alive. So for you today, as we look at this passage, my prayer is that God would confront you with the nastiness of who you are without Christ, but ultimately that he would comfort you with how beautiful you are because of him. It's not really a resurrection message, but it must be a resurrection message for us to leave this place with joy indeed, even though it, sometimes we may feel like that in our hearts. Let's look at John 19, 1 through 16, and really pull some good things here. 
John 19, 1 through 16. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then here at Fellowship, we like to go kind of line by line, verse by verse through the text. And so I, I really don't have much to share with you outside of God's word, so we're going to stick close to that, okay? So let's look at John 19, starting in verse 1. It says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, means he beat him. And the soldiers twisted together a throne of, a crown of thorns, rather, and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law. According to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard their statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You'll not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You'd have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold, you're king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. See, it's kind of gloomy and sad. Ultimately, at the end of the day, we're going to reach glory. But first, We've got to realize the bad news before we can reach the good news. One of the things that we've been doing these last few weeks uh, in at fellowship as we've been walking through the book of John is I've shown you guys a map. I'm going to go ahead and throw that up there again. This is just uh, sort of the last steps of Jesus. And so this diagram kind of depicts exactly what's been happening in the context and the historical flow of the narrative. You'll notice that number one, it goes up to number nine. Number nine ends at the Golgotha, which is Calvary, where Jesus would be uh, crucified. We see that number one, it goes to the northeast. They kind of go outside of the walls. Jesus at number one gave them the last supper. He washed the disciples' feet and then led them to having this farewell discourse where he shared these really intimate, personal feelings and emotions and sharing, hey, I'm leaving you guys, but listen, there's hope to be had. You're going to be an enemy of the world, but take heart. I've overcome the world. If they hated you, it's because they first hated me. You're actually with me if they hate you, not against me. And so he takes this farewell discourse and gives it to them as he walks to Gethsemane where he will be arrested at the very top part of that map. You see the two and the three up there. He's then brought back into the city gates to number four and then number five you'll see there. Basically those are two places where Jesus is undergoing a trial. But to be honest with you, it's a sham. It's not a real trial and no real evidence is being measured. They have one goal and that is to kill Jesus to save their own skin and their position. Jesus is then taken over to number six, which is called the Praetorium. That's where Pilate was. And then there's seven. We read about when Jesus is going to Herod and then coming back to number eight, which is where all this is going down. The trial, again, a sham trial with Pilate at the helm. 
sort of questioning Jesus. And there's the demand for Barabbas, which we talked about last week. His name literally means son of father, where you have the son of father being released and the son of the actual father, God himself, being crucified, just soaking in beautiful gospel imagery there. And so that's a recap to bring us where we are today. Last week, I talked about the fact that Jesus' death was a purpose-driven death. From the cradle to the cross to the crown, all of it was purpose-driven. The big theme, and these last few weeks especially, as we're looking at the sort of interrogation and the trial of Jesus, is the irony of Jesus' kingship. It's the innocence of Jesus, that Pilate's conclusion is that he's innocent, and yet so clearly is he innocent, he will die a guilty, mockery, shame-filled death. The king dies the death of a robber, a thief, a criminal, a loser, outcast of society that wouldn't even get a funeral, disowned. And yet he's the king of kings, soaking in irony once again. And so these themes that we're going to see are reinforced as Jesus' trial reaches conclusion here today. Look at verse 1. Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. We're going to go to the rest of the verses here in a second, but this is not the severe lashings and brutal punishment that he will endure prior to crucifixion. This is a milder, albeit bloody, beating. The context is that it seems that Pilate's reasoning was to garner sympathy for Jesus. Remember, he was torn over this decision. We just read about that. He's, he's very torn. These guys are demanding his head, and yet he kind of feels like he doesn't deserve it. And so maybe if I beat him up bad enough, they'll look at him and they'll say, yeah, this is ugly, and that's good enough kind of thing. And so Pilate is trying to garner sympathy. He saw Jesus as innocent, but also felt the need to appease the Jews who were demanding that he be put to death. Try to change their mind. And so he brings them out and he presents them as a beaten and defeated, helpless, shameful man. Look at verses 2 and 3. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns. And these aren't the little baby thorns that are over in your briar patch. These are long thorns that would stick into his head and cause nasty nasty scene bloody face they put on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe the color of royalty with blood streaming down his face swollen from the beating a purple robe of mock royalty it says in verse 3 they came up to him saying hail king of the jews and struck him with their hands you can't see this in the passage really but the context here is that the, the words and sort of the word picture is that these Roman officials would beat Jesus up, put a mock crown on him, treat him like a so-called king, dress him in royal colors, and then they would kneel before him. This is what they would do. they say, Hail Caesar. It required that they get down on their knees and look up at Caesar and say, Hail Caesar, and do sort of a gesture. But what they're doing is getting on their knees in front of Jesus with a mock crown in, in purple garb that is just to mock him. And they're saying, not Hail Caesar, but mockingly hail king of the jews and instead of gesturing in honor they gesture in nasty ridicule by slapping him so there's this get down on the knee hail king of the jews and they get up and they smack him in the face the god man the king of the jews verses four and five said that Pilate went out again after all this mockery this public display of shame happened and he said to them, see, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns, the purple robe, again, bloodied, beaten, and bruised. Pilate said to them, behold the man. What Pilate's saying here is behold the man. He's saying, here's the man that you find so dangerous to your position, so threatening to garner all this following. This is the guy. You find him so threatening and so, so vicious to you. Look at him. Can you not see these harmless and ridiculous looking? 
but they don't relent. Verses 6 and 7 say, When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law. According to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the Son of God. Again, the irony is not that he made himself the Son of God, it's that he is the Son of God. The situation is that for the Jews to be satisfied, Jesus had to die. And it's not just that they were just resolute. They were resolute for a religious purpose to them. According to their Bible, the Torah, Leviticus chapter 24, 16 said that a blasphemer had to die, be killed, capitally punished. But Pilate doesn't find Jesus guilty, and so there's a dilemma. And here it is, this is very important. That the question is, does Pilate save the innocent man but disrupt the region that he's been entrusted to as the governor as he's instructed to bring peace does he disrupt the region but put to death an innocent man or does Pilate kill the man who claims to be divine and appease the people and bring peace but potentially anger the gods do you spare him and bring conflict or kill him and bring peace that's the dilemma and to be honest with you Pilate is gut-wrenched over it but not to be lost in the passage is the main point of the book of John, the main point, and that is that Jesus is God. And none of this, not only did it not go under his radar, but it was part of the sovereign plan unfolding of a supreme God who is greatly over this circumstance for the good of his people. The Gospels all tell the same story with a different aim, and John's is to remind us, the reader, that God is God and that Jesus is him made flesh. Some of you guys are taking notes today, and I'd like to leave you with just a couple of things uh, whenever I teach God's word, that hopefully you can put these in the back of your mind and take them and be encouraged by them this week. So what we're going to talk about today is making Jesus king. And the first thing of three that I'm going to share with you today is that there's comfort in that, making Jesus king. It's comforting that even in tragedy, God is at work. That even in tragedy, God is at work. You see, due to this dilemma, Pilate is gut-wrenched. There's more context to be shared here. In Matthew 27, 19, Pilate's wife sends word to him. You guys aware of this? Pilate's wife sends word to him during the Barabbas trade that we looked at last week. She sends word to him, and she tells her husband, hey, Pilate, Pontius, Pontius, old buddy, right? Hey, listen, and this is very intense. She says, I had a dream, sort of what we would say is an omen, right? I had a dream have nothing to do with this righteous man. He's bad news. Like, if, if you involve yourself with this, this situation, this is bad news for us. Stay away from this guy. Get this guy out of, your, out of your eyesight because if we involve ourselves with this, there's bad news on our doorstep. And she sends word to him and says, there's a warning here. Beware. Now add to that, keeping that in mind, that the Jews tell Pilate, that Jesus claims to be the Son of God, divine. An omen not to trifle with this man, this innocent man. Now Pilate's hearing he's the Son of God, he's divine. You see, Romans were polytheistic, means they, the more gods, the merrier. They believed that men could be divine, like gods among men. And then his wife had a dream that some guy whose fate is in his hands may not just be some guy. And Pilate is shaken up inside. Look at verse 8. When Pilate heard this statement about Jesus being the Son of God, he was even more, it says, afraid. Remember, the natural conclusion Pilate comes to is to approach Jesus about this claim of the Jews. He goes and simply asks Jesus where he comes from. Look at verse 9. 
He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. You see, to Pilate, this trial that he at first maybe took lightly has become no joking matter. He sincerely seeks answers, but he knows, or Jesus knows rather, the trajectory that this meeting and this trial must go. Look at verses 10 and 11. So Pilate said to him, You'll not speak to me? Emphasis there on the authority. Me. Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, man, listen to this. You'd have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered you, me over to you has the greater sin. Verse 11 is a little bit odd, and I don't want to get bogged down by it because it's not really the point of the passage, but it's a bit odd. Jesus may be referring to Judas or Caiaphas here when he talks about the one with the greater sin. I believe it's probably Caiaphas, the high priest, who's sort of strong-arming this whole trial situation. Why are they more culpable than Pilate? Because Caiaphas initiated this horrible injustice against the innocent God-man prior to this. He had a plot to kill him. And so Pilate's guilt, what this means is that it's relatively passive. He remains responsible for his spineless, politically motivated decision, but at the same time, he didn't initiate or engineer this trial and betrayal of Jesus. But again, that's not really the point. The point is that Pilate anchors his frustration toward Jesus in his own authority over Jesus' destiny, and he's wrong. You think Pilate has authority here? Jesus is saying, Caiaphas delivered me, but this trial would not be in your hands if it wasn't truly under the authority of the Father question is this did Pilate have authority yes and no believe it or not before I pastored I could probably pull the room and ask you guys what do you think was the last job I had before I pastored and if I haven't told you I promise you no one in this room would get it I used to manage a smoothie shop and it's as exciting as it sounds right I dealt with little kids that were working by the way, the older you get, the more little kids they become. You know what I mean? And they were my employees, and it was hard because they had no sense at all. And uh, I didn't really believe in the product because they weren't really healthy. I don't, I don't know if you, this is a sidebar. Smoothie places aren't actually healthy for you. They're loaded with sugar. They have all that. You think it's fresh? It's like syrup. I don't know. I didn't even mean to say all that, but, you know, Jamba Juice. I mean, come on. This, no. Unless you see it. See the freshness? It's not fresh. I just wanted to say that. Anyway. Now the question is, as a manager, did I have authority or not? Well, yes and no. I was the boss. I set the, I set the wages even in a sense. They were, the owner entrusted that to me. I set hours. I was over inventory. I was given authority, but in a much more real sense, the guy, someone gave me the job. Someone paid me. Someone owned the building. Someone determined, I determined the day-to-day, but ultimately everything was determined not by the manager but by the owner. And so the question again is, did I have authority? Sure, but no. Because there's always someone that could step in and say, you have no power here, right? This is a good analogy for what we see with Pilate. And what Jesus is saying is, yeah, you're a governor, and all these people submit to you, but you just submit to another. And you'd have no authority if not for the one who put you in the position that they have to give, be given you authority, right? He had authority, sure. You have a trial in your hands. You do what you do. But you're not ultimately one in charge here, and that's Jesus' point. We know the choice that Pilate will make and the terrible tragedy that will ensue. Men were guilty of Jesus' murder, but please, please hear this principle. Jesus would not have been crucified if it were not ultimately not the plan of men, but the plan of the Father. It would not have happened if it were not ultimately in the hands of a holy 
God who has ultimate authority. The principle there is this, and there's comfort in that, by the way. There's comfort in knowing that this tragedy was laced in the sovereign power of a God who loves his people and loves his son. There's comfort here, because what I see in this passage is that God uses great tragedy for greater good. At Calvary, tragedy would lead to triumph. We looked at Philippians 2 last week, that because Jesus bore the wrath, but he also conquered the grave, it said that every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory, not the shame, the glory of God the Father. It's a brutal means to see it come to pass, but what a glorious outcome, because God uses tragedy for victory and triumph. And many of you need to hear this today, that your circumstances, please hear this, your circumstances, and I don't want to, listen, we're not pretending in this room. This is not a church where we pretend. We're not all just putting on a good face, and if we're doing it, we're all lying to ourselves. Because I know when you walk out of that door, you don't have a perfect family. You don't look perfect on the outside anymore. You don't look perfect, certainly, on the inside anymore. You go to work, and you're not perfect. Your family life is not perfect. Your life with your friends is not perfect. Inside, you're impure. Outside, you're impure. I know the truth, and you know the truth. And that is that we can all pretend in this room, but we are desperately in need of saving grace. Amen? That's the truth of the gospel, church. And I know that we can put on a good face in this room. And listen, your circumstances may be out of your hands, but they're not out of his. You may go out of this room and suffer and suffer and suffer and feel like you were in a bottomless pit of despair and think, Pastor, but you don't know my life. You're right. But I know the God who's in control of it. And I know that he loves you. Romans 8, 28 is a go-to for this exact principle. And it says, for those who love God, all things, don't miss the all, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, which is one of my favorites, says this. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you are grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire made pure may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ here's what that means that your greatest moments of spiritual growth will be in the moments that your faith is tried by fire the most and some of you know that to be true that your moments of greatest spiritual growth the time that God stretches you and grows you it comes from the times that God stretches you and you know it don't you when the loved one is in the hospital you lean on the healer don't you when money is tight you call on the provider don't you when the burden of sin is heavy you rest on the giver of grace when you feel like a failure as a parent, you find comfort in the one truly in control of your children's hearts. When depression feels like an inescapable pit, you lean on the lifter of your head, as the Psalms tell us. Listen, Easter is wrapped in bright clothes, smiles, sometimes sunshine, and the mass projection of happiness, isn't it? But several of you in this room are hurting this morning, and maybe you feel like you're the only one that knows. And maybe, humanly speaking, you are the only one that knows. But listen, God does not rest in the midst of your tragedy. God does not rest in the midst of your 
tragedy. He intends to reach you. He intends to grow you. He intends to comfort you, and he wants your attention and affection. When we look at the cross, we can take comfort in a truth that can sometimes feel hidden, and it's that our king is a comforter because he is at work even in times of tragedy, especially in times of tragedy, purifying us. It's great comfort in knowing that, church. I hope you feel that. The second thing that I want to leave with you guys is this. Making him king leads to us thinking about the word conquering, a conquering king. It leads me to a question, who am I crowning? Who am I crowning? You know, Jesus is the conqueror. We give ourselves too much credit if we think that we are. And yet we take up a battle every day, right? The battle against sin. I want to talk a little bit about the conquering nature of our king. The statement of Pilate that we've looked at just now is subservient. He talks about his authority, really, but it's subservient authority. And so Jesus sort of calls him out on that. And certainly it impacts Pilate because of his intentions. And they sort of shift after Jesus makes this strange declaration. Look at verse 12. From then on, it says, Pilate sought to release him. So Jesus makes some profound statement. He's like, I got to get you out of here, right? So his, his intentions totally shift. He intends to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you're not a, free, a friend of Caesar. He's not, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Now remember, Pilate, you may not know this, Pilate was a Roman prefect. Again, it's just another word for sort of a governor over a region. He wasn't one of the big dogs, but he was kind of one of the little dogs. And he had sort of rule and reign as a governor over this region of Judea. And so there were a lot of people that answered to, to Pilate, but ultimately Pilate answered to another Caesar. And so the Jews are trapping Pilate into a favorable verdict. We talked about last week that Jesus had admitted to being a king. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. Anybody that says that, my kingdom, they're saying that they're a king. And so Pilate knew that, and the Jews knew that, and said, this guy's calling himself a king. And so here's the the logic that flows from that, is that if Pilate serves Caesar, he has no choice but to crucify Jesus or himself be guilty of insubordination. You can go look at the history books. The guy that was Caesar at this time was a guy named Tiberius. I think that's a really cool name, but this guy was a real scumbag because you can go back and look in the history books and see that he was not a guy that was quick to be patient. He was a guy quick to be wrathful, not merciful, but strict and forceful, dropping the hammer at the slightest suspicion of his subordinates being insurrectionists. And so follow the logic that if Pilate failed to convict a man on well-substantiated charges put forward by the Sanhedrin, who was the highest court in the land of Judea, how would that look? Pilate would be stripped of his power, arrested, or worse, killed himself for insubordination against Caesar. And the Jews know that, and they were manipulating the narrative. You see this. If you're watching this moment on the big screen, if this was a movie, a well-done movie, which I like well-done movies, This would be the moment of great intensity because Pilate is faced with the crossroads. Do the right thing and suffer terrible consequences or do the wrong thing and protect your skin. And he chooses the latter. But the air is thick because of the severity of the circumstance. Look at verses 13 through 16. So when Pilate heard these words, again, their threat, you're against Caesar if you do this, he brought Jesus out and sat, him on the ju- sat down on the judgment seat, a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic called Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. 
This is very important, and we're not done yet. The Jews in his audience knew their Bibles. They knew their Old Testament. For thousands of years, Israel had been given God as their true king, and these guys knew that. Even back in uh, the book of um, Judges, Judge Gideon rejected kingship. In Judges 8, 23, it says that Gideon said to them who wanted him to be their king, he said, I will not rule over you. My son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you because he knew who the king was. Later on in 1 Samuel 8, 7, Israel is demanding an earthly king of God's prophet Samuel. He would not yield to their demand for an earthly king because he recognized God as their king. And in that passage, 1 Samuel 8, 7, he said, or God said to him, to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Listen, the irony of John 19, 15, when Pilate says, Shall I crucify your king? is that Pilate spoke truer than he realized, that God's people were introduced to God in the flesh, and they once again rejected their king. In this action, they are committing the sins of countless men and women before them, making someone or something their king that is not God, the only true king. And guys, listen, this was the sin that led to Calvary, but this rejection of God as king is at the heart of every sin that you and I and anybody else has ever committed. Because sin, listen, is a rejection of God as king as we replace him with someone or something else, typically ourselves. It's a violation of the very first of the Ten Commandments. We love no other gods, read kings, before him. Sin is crowning a false king. It's saying, God, I know that your word says this, that you'd have me to do this, but I reject that in favor of this because this is what I want right now. You're not the king. We say, I know your word says I should have a quiet time. Spend emotional, intense moments with you in quiet time, reading God's word, praying. I know it says that, but this other thing serves what I want more, TV or sleep or social media, my phone, whatever. God, I know that you would desire me to be involved in church, but it's hard. And this other thing is demanding my attention, and, and I like that thing. I know I need to be baptized. We talk ourselves out of that. It isn't what saves you, and so it's awkward, and I don't want the attention. I want, I want this. I know porn is bad. I know I should keep an upright perspective and not compromise, but everybody's doing it. Is it that big of a deal? It's kind of expected. It's just my body. I know I should reconcile with that person, but I'm waiting for them to apologize to me first. I know it's technically gossip, but it's not really a big deal, and this is kind of what makes me feel better, or whatever it may be. It's all uncrowning God and dropping it on our own head and saying, my way. With your daily choices, who are you crowning? Who are you hailing as king? It's not a matter of wordplay. It's a matter of devotion and loyalty. And listen, Satan has been luring humans into rejecting their king and crowning themselves since the Garden of Eden. Sin is no small thing. It is a heavenward chant in the face of the one true king of all kings, Hail Caesar or Caleb or whomever. Who do we crown? He is the king. But do we live like he's the king? The third thing. Hey Amen. We're going to land this thing with some good news today, church. And that's that he's coming. 
we can find peace in the prize. Peace in the prize. <clears throat> kind of sounds like piece of the pie. It's like pizza or something. It makes me think of like dominoes or something. I don't know. You see, in the midst of this violent mock trial, I'm reminded of the angel at Jesus' birth, <laughs> right? It's the opposite of this, an innocent baby, a violent supposed criminal. I'm reminded of that angel when he proclaimed that he was ushering in peace on earth. This doesn't sound peaceful, does it? The story of tragedy is actually a story of triumph. That's what we're reminded of, right? The good news here, that he is ushering an era of peace. We'll look back at verse 14, if you will. Please, oh man, this is so good. Man, this is so great. What a blessing it is to read this. Listen, now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It's about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. You may read that and say, get to the good part. I want to share with you something. When it says that it's the day of the preparation of the Passover, it doesn't mean that they're setting out their silverware and putting up decorations. It's the time that lambs were beginning to be slaughtered, shedding blood to commemorate the Passover, the holiday where they remembered that God delivered them from bondage, imprisonment in Egypt, saved them from bondage, and liberated the captive that they could go free. Commemorating the time, slaughtering lambs to have a feast to celebrate that our God is a God of salvation. And this is the part it's just so beautiful. Is on the day that they're slaughtering lambs to remember that our God's a God who saves. The day of preparation, at the hour, they're oblivious to the fact that the true Lamb of God has already shed his blood and his life would be poured out to remind us that our God is a God who saves. Those animals couldn't cut it. The Son of God could. And he would redeem the bondage, the broken, the prisoner, liberate the captive, and ransom for himself his own. The day of preparation that the lamb was being slain. See, our king's body was being prepared to be slaughtered. Pilate said right there, we just read it in verse 14, blood streaming down his face on the day of preparation. He says, behold your king. I don't know about you, but if you were here when we started this whole thing, back in John 1, and we looked at John the Baptist, do you remember what John the Baptist said when Jesus entered the scene? What did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God, who does what? Say it. Who takes away the sins of the world. <laughs> Behold your King, church. The Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. The event that identified him as King also identified him as the Lamb, and the Lamb had to be slain. But listen, please hear this. He didn't stay dead. He didn't stay dead. Contrast the settings. Jesus is being held up, a stone pavement. It's elevated above the people. Similar to a throne, except Pilate's got the seat. He displays him and said, Behold your king. He's bloodied and gruesome. A mock crown and a mock wardrobe. Contrast that with what we read about in Revelation 5. This is a different story with beautiful parallels. It's going to be on the screen. Pay attention to this. Revelation 5.5 5 says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. That's the plan of redemption. Finalized. 6 says, And between the 
throne. Who gets a throne? Kings get thrones. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a what? A lamb standing. As though it had been slain. Verse 8 then says, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. How can they talk to him if he's slain? Shouldn't he be dead? He was. No longer. You were slain, it says. Open its seals. And by your blood you ransomed, means liberated the captive, the people from God, for God, from every tribe, language, people, and nation. 10 says, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Who gets a kingdom? Only a king. 11 says, then I looked and I heard around the throne. Who gets a throne? Only a king. And the living creatures and the elders and the voice of the angels, myriads, myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice in verse 12, worthy is the lamb who was slain. He shouldn't be, he should be dead though, right? No, this not, not this lamb. The king of kings is alive. And it says, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever because our king is alive. The lamb was slain. He was killed, and yet he didn't stay dead. He's currently, for all of eternity, sitting on the throne because only kings do that. And it's because he conquered, because he ransomed, because he made a kingdom, and because he sits on an eternal throne that we can, not just on Easter, but every single Sunday and every single day, confidently say, praise King Jesus. Come again quickly, Lord Jesus. There's hope in eternal life. But there is no hope in eternal life if our king who promised it is not himself eternally alive. His resurrection is a foretaste. In Revelation, or rather 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 22 says this about that foretaste. It says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith, my faith, futile, you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep, that means dead, in Christ have perished. And if, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are to be most pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by one man came death, that's Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That's why the resurrection is vital. A few weeks ago, we went to the beach with my in-laws. And um, one of the things that we do from time to time when we're down there to uh, wrangle the animals that we call our children is uh, we take them to an arcade. And uh, they're so little, they really don't even understand it. They just see lights and it's fun and exciting. Hope they never fall into a casino, you know what I mean? Then they'll be really excited and it'll be much more dangerous for the wallet. Um, we went to an arcade and all, it's fun and it's exciting and there's lights and all this stuff. And my, little boy he's three and he's a big boy but he ain't big enough to hop on one of those big plastic motorcycles and ride that thing his feet can't even reach what needs to be reached you know what I mean but there was a game that he wanted to play it was a monopoly game and he wanted to play it because there was a big price is right looking wheel you know what I'm talking about where they reach over you guys ever seen the price is right come on Bob Barker um, he saw this big wheel and it had all the properties from monopoly on there and the way that you did it you didn't take dice and roll it there was this big 
glowing purple neon dice, and he just wanted to spin it, because he saw it spinning, he was like, that's what I want to do. It's like, he doesn't even understand what he's doing, you know, but I was like, okay, whatever. So I'm thinking, it's a waste. This, uh, for me, arcades are completely a waste anyway, but this especially was a waste, because he's just going to spin this wheel, and that's going to be it. There's no interaction, you know. But he swipes the little digital card that holds his uh, credits and the tickets, and he goes, and I'm thinking, man, this little dude, he ain't going to get a good spin on this thing, so daddy steps in. You know what I mean? Mm, not as big as you, Brad, but I, a little bit, you know? So I, I grabbed this, this dice with, with Zion, my son, and we spun that thing, and it just spun around for forever, and he was just watching it. You know, because the thing just... And um, it slowed down and got slower, and I was thinking it's going to land on, like, Baltic or Mediterranean or something. You know what Monopoly is. You get the joke. Um, but it didn't. It landed on Boardwalk. Ooh, right? <laughs> it landed on Boardwalk, and uh, that afforded him 1,000 tickets, which is a lot. Um, 1,000 tickets, man. And uh, I went crazy. I was hyping him up like he just, you know, took a basketball and dunked it on somebody <laughs> Um, I got real hyped up about that, and I was trying to hype him up, but he had no idea what he was doing. He's like, he, even, he doesn't even know what 1,000 is. Like, to him, one 1,000, there's no difference in those two numbers. And so I said, you just got 1,000 points. And he's like, okay, like, wh what does that do, you know? And uh, I was trying to hype him. I was like, dude, that's exciting, man. It's like, we're going to get lots of tickets, and you get prizes. And he's just like, okay, <laughs> great, you know? And, and all the adults are like, hyping him up and rubbing his head and he's you know doesn't know what's going on you see I knew the weight of that he did not know the weight of that to him it was unseen digital tickets that sounded exciting but he could only see dimly really what it meant and so I sort of walked him over to the prize station where he redeemed the tickets I was trying to explain him as we were walking um, what is in store for him right like you can't see this you it's just a card it just it looks the same but you can't see this prize but when we get over there we're about to go party, you know what I mean? It's like, you're going to have a fun time because of what's about to happen, what's to come at this desk. And so we walk up there, and by the way, that's hard to do with a three-year-old is to get them excited about something they can't see. And so he was confused, but he's happy because he could see the demeanor of his father. And so when we finally redeemed it, the prize that I assured him was coming was realized. But here's the thing. Even before Zion saw the binoculars, the slinky, and the toy dirt bike, before he saw those things, those prizes were his, he just didn't know what a joy it was, really was until he could see it. Guys, in Christ's death and resurrection, if you have confessed your sin, asked him to ransom your weary, sin-stained soul, and professed him as Lord, you have been given already the eternal prize. And one day, you will finally lay hold of it, behold it, because we finally behold our King. This life will always overpromise and yet always underdeliver. Look beyond this life. So many of us are like Zion, bewildered. We see the numbers on a screen or words on a page. We see the demeanor of the people in the passages and think, yeah, that sounds exciting. But we see it with dim lit eyes because we haven't yet beheld it. But please hear me. That does not make the prize any less amazing. You just haven't seen it yet. But you can trust your Father who has kept it for you and He's trying to hype you up. And that's what we do on Sundays is we remember the prize that awaits us 
that is no less real today than it will be in glory. And my goal, again I will say, this Easter Sunday is the same that it is every Sunday, and that is to bring to mind the bad news of where you and I are apart from the resurrection so that we can leave this place wrapped in the good news of who we are because he is alive. The bad news is that we come into this world, like Chris said earlier, sin-stained and separated from a holy God, but it is because of the work of God's Son, Jesus the Christ, that we may be reconciled to God in perfect fellowship. And if you're in Jesus, and if you've confessed your sin, recognized him as Lord and Savior, that is yours, and that is good news. So my question to you is, where do you stand? Because if you have never made him your king, that is not good news. You know, Pilate sat on the judgment seat, but that seat is ultimately reserved for Jesus. And for those that have never come to a point in their life where they've made Jesus Lord and Savior, his coming will not be a good day. So my prayer for you this morning is that you would wake up and that you would behold him for the first time today and fall on your faces and say, Jesus, save me from me. The bondage of my sin that the Passover lamb came to put to rest, and yet he did not lay rest, but came back to life. That you would find comfort in that because he's the conqueror and because he's the coming king.